Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And welcome to our Conversation with the Candidate series. I'm Adam Sexton, and our guest this evening is former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Tonight we'll be getting to know Governor Hickenlooper and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we start with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. John Hickenlooper was born in 1952 and grew up outside of Philadelphia. He got his bachelor's degree in English from Wesleyan University, as well as a master's degree in geology. He worked as a geologist, but after losing his job, he opened a brew pub in Denver, a city where he would later serve on the board of municipal and civic nonprofit organizations. Hickenlooper eventually opened 15 brew pubs and restaurants, mostly across the Midwest. In 2003, he won his first political campaign, the race to become mayor of Denver. As mayor, he touted his record reducing crime, expanding pre-K to every four-year-old, and transforming the city into an economic hub. He was elected governor of Colorado in 2010 and re-elected in 2014. During that time, the state created a workforce development program, reduced methane emissions, and passed universal background checks for guns and a limit on high-capacity magazines. Hickenlooper is married and has a son. Governor, thanks for joining us on Conversation with the Candidate. You bet. So in some ways, you're a very traditional candidate. You've got business experience, you've been a mayor, you've been a governor. But after 2016, in some ways, the, the map of politics is a little different. <laughs> Do you still think that traditional experience, coming up through the ranks and doing all those things, is an asset that voters are looking for? Well, I think it's, it's essential in a, in a powerful way. I think there's a real appetite for people that have done things. And there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of people in Washington right now that have all kinds of ideas and they're dreamers. I'm a dreamer, but I'm a doer. And I think that, you know, whether you look at health care, where we got to almost universal health care in Colorado on a bipartisan way, whether you look at uh, climate change, we got the environmental community to sit down with industry and create methane regulations for the first time in the country. When you look at the economy, we went from 40th in job creation to being the number one economy in the U.S. for the last two years, according to U.S. News and World Report. These are all things where, where I was able to bring people together, get them to lay down their weapons, and then get stuff done. And I think, I think there's got to be a real appetite for that, I think. Some people refer to you as the moderate candidate in this race. You look at folks like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, they're proposing a lot of things. Do you agree with that characterization? You're the moderate in this race? Well, I don't like any of the labels, to be honest. Uh, you know, it, it categorizes people, it puts them in a box. It, 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 in a funny way, it allows people to disregard them or... Or, or ignore their ideas. I mean, our challenges are so significant and the solutions are complex and they're, and they're nuanced. And I think we have to kind of step back and I mean, if I was gonna look at myself, I'd say I'm an extreme moderate or, you know, I'm someone who's got stuff done. What's the, what's the label for that? A doer? I'm, I'm a doer. Has the Democratic Party moved too far to the left though, in your opinion? I think that the Democratic Party has always been a big tent. And I hold out a lot of what we've been able to achieve in Colorado as classic progressive goals, right? That we've been really been able to bring people together and, you know, get things done. We're the only purple state where we passed universal background checks for gun safety. I mean, that's a, a, a classic progressive goal. Does, does that make us too left? Does that make us, I mean, these are things, 
What I look for is progress, right? Actually getting things done and, and moving the ball down the field. There are a lot of big and bold ideas in this race, though. You talk about universal basic income, the Green New Deal. Do you have any of those big and bold ideas that can capture the imagination of voters? How does an extreme moderate uh, convey something, if it's a moderate policy, uh, that, that will capture the imaginations of the voters? Well, it's, again, I think it's got to be realistic and things you can do. Uh, one thing that we've worked on a lot in Colorado is this challenge around the, the, the disruption that's going to happen to the workplace. I mean, artificial intelligence, automation, again, professions are going to get swept away, but there are going to be new professions rolling out. You know, what we need is skills, and we need skills in community colleges all over the United States, and I view that as an untapped resource. So I say, you know, and this is something we can do. I am aware of uh, I'm not aware of a single community college in Colorado or anyone I've talked to across the country where the business community isn't eager to help, provide resources, loan executives. I think our community colleges have to, we have to expand their capacity by 10x, right, by, by 10 times, and we should be able to say free skills for all, free community college, and that's something we can get done in a year without a lot of commotion. Now, is that extreme enough? I don't know, but it's something that that we as Americans should demand because it gets us back towards that sense of American tradition that, that everybody has equal opportunity. And those skills, 70% of our kids are never going to get a four-year college degree, and we've ignored them. We left them behind. Colorado has been on the cutting edge of cannabis legalization. 2012, I think, was when uh, that state went forward with that. As president, what would you do about the states like Colorado who are operating essentially in violation of federal law? So I think that at this point, I oppose cannabis legalization. Uh, I was worried about teenage consumption spiking. I was worried about people driving while high. We haven't seen that. Uh, we still have problems. I'm not saying it's a perfect system, but it's much better than the old system where we sent millions of kids to prison. Not only did they go to prison, we made them felons. Many of these kids were from very low-income communities. I think as president, I would go out and let states make the decision, but I would change the federal rules and, and regulations so that it, it, the federal government isn't blocking states from successfully making this transition to a different system. So right now, the federal government says it's illegal to do any banking connected, connected with cannabis. That's crazy. I mean, if you want to guarantee that a new industry was going to be corrupt and full of racketeering, make it cash, right? No one wants to do it, but that's crazy. We shouldn't do that. We should remove cannabis from a schedule, as a Schedule I narcotic so we can do medical testing. I think the federal government should... The FDA should step forward and create standards by which we can judge whether, just like any pharmaceutical, whether marijuana works for this illness or that illness, you know, where, is it, where should it be uh, uh, prescribed and where should it not be. Uh, I think we also should have the Department of Agriculture come and make sure there are no pesticides uh, being used with the cultivation of marijuana. So that, that basic stuff where the federal government lets states make the decision but make sure that they remove all their laws and rules that, that get in the way of states, states successfully implementing a new regulatory framework around cannabis. Okay, Governor, thanks for your time here. Don't go anywhere. Up next, we're going to join our live studio audience for the town hall portion of Conversation with the Candidate. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know.
Welcome back to Conversation with a Candidate and our candidate, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. We have our studio audience, our town hall of New Hampshire voters here, and we're going to get things started with questions for the former governor right away, starting with George Matthews from Nashua. Hi, Governor. Hi, George. Um, what specific plan do you have to beat the president? Ah, the question of the day. Well, the first thing I'll say is that defeating Donald Trump, in my opinion, is absolutely essential, but it is not sufficient. Because in the end, you know, he's a symptom of this, what I call the crisis of division, I think affecting the whole country. So I'll just put that as a context. But I think that I am the, if you look at how we're going to beat Donald Trump, we're going to have to win back Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Florida. And I look at this, I'm a, a small business, an a small business person, an entrepreneur, uh, I was out of work for two years. I reinvented myself. I, I created a business. I, I created a thousand jobs. Uh, but I also then had the experience as a mayor and a governor to understand how government works at the different levels and how dysfunctional it's become in Washington. And I think people in Michigan and, and, and Wisconsin and you know, these, these Midwestern states, they're going to want to see someone who understands business and jobs. Uh, we've been working in Colorado to create apprenticeship programs and skills-based training in our community colleges to make sure that the kids of all ages have a chance to learn the skills that are going to open the door for them to get, you know, much better jobs in this new economy. And, you know, President Trump has done nothing but, but turn his back on the people that helped elect him. And I think my job is to go out there and offer real examples of here's what a future can look like when you begin to, to prepare people, give them the chance to, to, to lift themselves up, which he hasn't done, right? I mean, you, you look at, I was in Iowa a couple weeks ago, and they say that a soybean farmer in Iowa will have to have eight good years just to get back to where they were two years ago. George, thank you very much thank for you, the George. question. Thank you. And, no, there you go. And uh, now the next question will come from Lynn Healy. Welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> The um, World Happiness Report was recently released and it indicated that Americans are not happy in spite of all the things that we have going for us. What can you do to reignite the American spirit for the common good? Thank you, Lynn. And that's, I think that's a question for people of all ages and in all parts of the country. More even than the, the lack of of happiness that we see again and again uh, in all parts of the country. People, when, when Gallup is doing a poll now where they look at, do you think you're going to be better off in five years than you are today? And really, there's been a major inflection. People no longer feel that confidence uh, that the future is going to be better. So optimism obviously starts at the top. Uh, and as an entrepreneur, you, can, you cannot be an entrepreneur without being an optimist. And part of that is a belief that if you work hard enough and you persevere, you can overcome almost anything. I mean, my mother, my mother was widowed twice before she was 40 years old. So she had two children with her first husband who died at the end of World War II and then married my dad and had two kids with him and he died just when I turned eight. And my mother wouldn't let us feel sorry for ourselves and, and, and she was constantly pushing us. Was it drama? Was it sports? Was it academics? Find something that, that you, will engage you and then invest yourself and, and, and build the relationships with people around you. Uh, in terms of the United States creating that optimism, part of it is people have to believe in their future. And I think this notion that, 
that we have created an economic system where, you know, in the old days, the, the middle class would get security and opportunity from our economic system, and poor people would have an opportunity to grab a hold of the economic ladder and pull themselves up. And most people don't believe that now. And in fact, it's not true anymore. 75 to 80% of our, of our uh, American families are having a hard time balancing their budget at the end of the month. Uh, I think we have to begin to change what, our, what American capitalism looks like. And for the last 30 or 40 years, we've been giving a little tax break here, a little cut here, basically doing everything to help businesses, especially large businesses, be more successful, more profits for their shareholders. But somehow that hasn't passed down to their employees and their stakeholders, their communities. And I think that there are ways we can, A, help people start businesses. And for 20 years now, there have been a, less, a, a lower number each year of people starting businesses. And that's where job creation starts. That's where optimism springs forward. Uh, people feel that the, in, in too many industries, there are just a few giant companies that dominate that industry and would-be entrepreneurs aren't willing to take the risk to start their business. Uh, in too many occasions, the, people feel there's too much red tape and, and just paperwork to fill out and you know, these would-be entrepreneurs are usually pretty successful employees somewhere else. They stay there. We need to get more startups, more businesses, and as we begin to create more jobs, make sure everybody has a chance to, to be part of that economic success. That should be our single highest priority. I think we should look at taking uh, you know, our community colleges. What a resource. We have them all over the country. They can provide the skills that, that kids of all ages need right, to, to in, engage in this new economy. We have uh, again and again and again, we see that, that people feel what well, the economy's left them behind, that they can't keep up with it. Of course they can keep up with it if we give them that chance. Uh, and I have it in every community college I've talked to around the country, you know, the, they have great relationships with the business community. The business community would love to support them if they can get workers with the right skills. So I think we can scale and say, all right, we're going we're gonna to increase and expand the capacity of, of our community colleges by 10 times. And, you know, we won't have to raise taxes to do that. We'll work in partnership with the, the business community and make sure that every single person in this country has an opportunity to learn the skills and be part of that, be part of that new economy. The last thing I'll just throw in quickly is in terms of our rural uh, community, you know, in Colorado, we, we placed an emphasis on making sure we didn't leave behind any part of the state. When I got elected, we were 40th in job creation. For the last two years, U.S. News and World Report has ranked us the number one economy in America. But we also helped bring along the rural economy as well. So by the end of 2020, we will have high-speed internet, we'll have broadband in every single city and town in Colorado, right? Because that's the basic ante that allows us to help those rural parts of the state succeed. In, in Colorado, we, we started a thing called Jumpstart Colorado. And it means that if an entrepreneur starts a business in, rural part of the, in a rural part of the state, they don't pay any tax of any kind to the state of Colorado for five years, nor do their employees pay any tax of any kind for the first five years. I mean, those kinds of things, as we get the economy going again, we have to make sure that we don't leave parts of this country behind. This is one country, united we stand and divided we fall. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. We have a social media com question coming in from Greg Zarnecki. He asks, do you believe we need law enforcement reform nationwide? If so, what change would you be necessary to achieve? So I dealt with this when I first became mayor. You know, I ran for mayor in 2003. 
And, and I'd never run for student council. I'd never run for class president. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, I, I went out there, I said I wouldn't do any negative ads. I never have done a negative ad. I never will do a negative ad. I made a real focus on, you know, we're going to do things the right way. And then right after I got elected, uh, two weeks before I was going to be inaugurated, uh, a young, a 15-year-old African-American boy named Paul Childs uh, was shot and killed by the police in his own living room. He was walking around. He was, I think, uh, had some developmental disabilities, uh, but he was walking around holding a knife straight up. And his mom just told her daughter, his, Paul Childs' sister, you know, call the police, get them to come take that knife away from Paul. Well, the police came, emptied the house out, commanded him to drop the knife for three, you know, three times, and then they shot him dead in his own living room. We began an effort around you know, reforming the, our police system in Denver. This is 10 years before Ferguson. We created uh, uh, CIT training for every police officer. That's crisis intervention training. It allows police officers to recognize someone from a different culture, someone uh, is having a mental health issue. Uh, we made sure that we had beanbags, shotguns, and, and tasers, you know, non-lethal tools available for the police officers. We also created the, the Civilian Oversight Commission to look at all the patterns of police misconduct and behavior. Were they stopping and frisking African Americans or Latinos more than other people, which it turns out they were. And we created an Office of the Independent Monitor to be able to investigate issues around police misconduct outside the mayor's office, outside the city government. So, uh, so that they could get accurate information about, about those police officers that were, you know, behaving in, an, in a, in a uh, I mean, in an egregious way. And this became, we did this all in partnership with what was, uh, what we have in Denver is the Black Ministerial Alliance. There were 35 uh, pastors and reverends, and they for two years became my partners as we created this system to make sure that we reformed our police department. Part of it was changing our discipline matrix so that police officers, instead of getting a slap on the wrist, uh, on a slap on the wrist, could really be held accountable. Uh, as a country, I think the federal government, you know, the Justice Department has to investigate those places where the police department isn't getting that kind of support, but should also lay out that template that we created in Colorado that allows our community to have a real voice in judging and assessing police misconduct. And then when you do have, I mean, most police officers are honest, hardworking people they bring a lot of integrity to their job, but it only takes a few bad apples to really create disaster. I mean, the consequences for bad, for bad officers is so traumatic and so destructive to our community. So I, I, I would argue that the, the, the federal government in the United States has a real responsibility to go out and help communities reform their police departments. Our next question comes from Paul Dosher of WHERE. Thank you for being here, Governor. Tell us what you would do specifically to address climate change. Sure, thank you. And that's the question, not just in New Hampshire, it's a question yeah. that's at the top of the list everywhere. Uh, and I've got a, a master's in geology. Uh, I think my, one of my interns told me that I'm the first, uh, the first geologist ever elected a governor in the United States, uh, which I'm not sure what that says. Uh, but I also think that the, uh, well, I know for a fact that I'm the first brewer since Sam Adams in 1792 to get elected <laughs> governor. Um, as a geologist, I, I get it. And, you know, science isn't perfect. They're telling us now in 12 years, the consequences of climate change could well be irreversible. It could be eight years. So we have to make this the highest urgency that we possibly can. And in Colorado, 
we were the first state to actually get the environmentalists, the environmental community, to sit down with the oil and gas industry and negotiate methane regulations. Methane is 25 to 40 times more destructive to climate than carbon dioxide. And in these methane regula regulations, in the end, it was 14 months of negotiation. And let me tell you, the environmental community and the oil and gas people hate each other. A lot of history of, of stabbing each other in the back. It was a, a, a bit of a challenge to try and keep everybody in the room uh, at certain times. But in the end, the oil and gas industry agreed to pay $60 million to implement these regulations. It's the equivalent of taking 320,000 automobiles a year off the roads. And that, now that's being rolled out as national policy in Canada. It should be national policy in the United States, which it was until President Trump came along. Uh, but it should also be a global policy because methane is so important. The other, the other part of it is we're closing two coal plants, and for the first time in the history of the United States, we were able to streamline permitting, right? Make sure every, the, you know, the public's voice was heard, but, but streamline the permitting so that uh, as we open, as we close the two coal plants, we will replace that electrical generation with solar, with wind, and batteries. For the first time, no natural gas. So we will have solar and wind and batteries, and for the first time, the, the, the consumer's electric bills each month will go down. So now all of a sudden we transformed the market uh, uh, to really becoming our partner. We also were able to get all 10 Western states to collaborate and create a 10-state uh, 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 framework by which we create, we use some of the Volkswagen, uh, you know, the Volkswagen diesel scandal, all that settlement money, to create high-speed rapid recharging centers for electric vehicles all over the West. So if you're driving from Denver up to Yellowstone Park, you don't have to drive around Wyoming. Uh, even Wyoming agreed to participate. I've got, We've got to do all that and more. This has to be a sense of urgency that, that so far this country, we haven't been able to convince the people of America to embrace, but we have to. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank Next you. question comes from Carolyn Morrill. In 2006, many Democrats supported the Secure Fence Act for border security. It was an 80 to 19 vote to do 700 miles. Why do you think having a barrier on the borders is now deemed immoral by some of those same Democrats? <laughs> I think the question now is it's that the, the border wall is, is perceived as a scapegoat for a lot of other issues. And the immigrants in this country, people here legally and illegally, have been demonized and, and, and you know, told that they're, you know, that that all, they're all rapists or they're all criminals in some way. We've got an issue in terms of our immigration system. Uh, when I ran for re-election, I met a number of people that had had small businesses, like commercial painters or sheet rockers, who'd been in business for 20 or more years, and they wouldn't pay people under the table, and their businesses went out of business uh, because they, they did things the right way, right? That's not American. Other employers were paying people under the table. I think the first thing is we've got to make sure that Nobody gets paid under the table, that we get uh, you know, a, a system of ID in place and, and a commitment from business and sufficient punishment to ensure that people get paid above the table. But we also aren't going to expel 11 or 12 million people that are here illegally. The last data I saw from the Department of Labor, we have 7.2 million jobs that are available, and many of them need certain skills that our, the potential employees don't have. But 7.2 7.2 million, million jobs that are there. We have 6.3 million unemployed people. In other words, we've got more jobs than people, and this notion that we're going to suddenly expel all these other folks that are doing jobs that we need for our economy is crazy. So my argument is 
let's fix the immigration system once and for all. I mean, we need, I mean, how do we, certainly in, in all across the country, we're having a hard time harvesting certain crops, you know, uh, apples and, and blueberries. They can't be, they can't be harvested by, by machines, and yet we don't have people to do that work. Uh, look at the electrical engineers that we bring these, the smartest electrical engineer, engineers in from India, or from, from China, and once they get their PhD, we force them to leave. We, we don't want those hundreds and thousands of jobs that they might create in this country. What we should be doing is giving them an incentive so that they can stay if they start their business in rural America somewhere. Right? So we make sure the economic opportunities are, 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 are settled. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Carolyn. And we have just a little bit of time. You can get your water there, Governor. Time for one quick question for me here. How do you ensure that the people who are in the process legally right now to immigrate to the United States or to gain citizenship don't get skipped by the 12 million who've come here illegally? Well, I think that's one of the real questions of the system. When a system is this dysfunctional and this broken, it's, I think it really is a reflection of how bad things have gotten in, in Washington, that those, those people that are playing by the rules often, you know, they're not ignored, but, they, but they're not treated fairly. And in some cases, they are ignored. Uh, my priority would always be to make sure that you've got to play by the rules and the people that are playing by the rules get the first priority. Uh, but again, I don't think we should talk about, you know, uh, uh, putting 11 million or 12 million or 13 million people out of this country at a time when we don't have enough people to do the jobs we already have. And this economy, everyone says there's a recession coming. I think we should be, you know, assuming and hoping and working to make sure the economy continues to grow because that's how you're going to raise prices or raise uh, wages, uh, not raise prices, whoops. Uh, uh, that'll get me in trouble. Um, We're going to get you in more trouble here in the third, next 30 minutes. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly, 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. We're joined again by our live studio audience of Town Hall, regular New Hampshire voters here, and we're going to have our next question coming from Kathleen Hoey. Hello, Governor. Hi, How are you? Um, I wanted to ask you, as president, how would you address the high cost of prescription drugs so that people can get the treatment they need rather than sacrificing their basic needs? Kathleen, that is the, one of the questions of the hour. It's, I spent the last couple of days going around New Hampshire. I heard that at every single place I went, the high cost of healthcare, the high cost of prescription drugs. Uh, I, for the life of me, and I've spent a, time, a lot of time trying to figure it out, I don't understand why, if you're gonna buy insulin in Canada, it is one twentieth the cost of buying insulin in this country, and why we're giving preferential treatment to, uh, you know, our, our economic neighbors next door uh, when we're facing such you know spiral. People, I mean, I feel first as a as a on any discussion where you're talking about pharmaceuticals or healthcare, we as a country have to get to that point where we say basic healthcare is a right, not a privilege, right? And once we accept that, then we can begin the debate of how do we get to, is it, is it Medicare for all? I'm not sure we could do that immediately just because as, as unhappy as many people are with their insurance, their health care insurance, many other people are happy. And you can't just, I don't think it's a good idea when government rips things away from people that are, where they're happy with it. Uh, but we've got to figure out some way to control, find cost controls. One way is transparency. Every hospital, every clinic, if you're, 
If your child or your grandchild is, is getting their tonsils out, you should be able to see on your phone what the cost and copay is going to be for you if you go to this clinic or that hospital, and there should be some measure of quality. You should know that you're getting a B plus or an A minus quality, you know, a very high level of quality. I mean, that transparency, I think, would allow consumers to make decisions and push the cost curve down. In pharmaceuticals, you know, we have done two things. One is that the, the, the drug companies have had to invest so much money that they need to, to charge sometimes ridiculously high prices for pharmaceuticals. Now, sometimes they're providing uh, a, a cure or, or a solution for someone who had no solution before. Uh, and in many cases, that saves society a huge amount of money of taking care of that person who would be in, in miserable circumstances. I mean, that's, that works. But in other cases, they're just ramping up the cost for their own profit. And again, that's where transparency is. We should see what, how much money are they investing in research. And as Americans, we should recognize that we've got to unite together with, with, with the good drug companies, right? Which there are. We have issues in Alzheimer's and dementia. I'm going to guess almost everywhere I go, I ask whether someone, a family member or a close friend has had Alzheimer's and dementia. Almost everyone says yes. And yet <coughs> the, the prescription drugs that we're providing for Alzheimer's are the same that we used 10 years ago. And, and there's no, to my knowledge, no drug company that's close to, to a more effective drug. Most of them aren't even putting serious money towards research. We have to change that. By 2050, they're saying that we will be spending $1.2 trillion a year just on various forms of dementia. And, and that's in, in 2018 dollars. Uh, I mean, where's that money going to come from? We have to figure out, as a country, to put more money to, to scientific research, medical research, that is what they call pure research, really looking at, at, the, at, the, at the fundamental parts of biological science, but then also provide incentives so that, that, that large drug, co drug companies who right now are saying, well, Alzheimer's doesn't look beneficial, we're not going to make a profit on it. We have to figure out how to put enough money on, on the table so that they do provide and find a cure for it, because otherwise it's just going to suck money out of our entire community. So, a, make sure that we get a fair deal that we can negotiate for pharmaceuticals like, anybody, like these other countries do. Uh, and, the, and B, make sure the future drugs aren't as expensive. The, the other thing we could do for, for large, uh, broad, expanse uh, pharmaceuticals and drugs, we now, uh, in some cases, will require up to 250,000 people be part of that test population before it's approved by the FDA. Well, with big data, a lot of people think that we could do that same amount of research with 10,000 people, which would be dramatically less expensive. And if it gets us that same information, you know, again, we should demand that, the, that, 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 that is resolved, that, 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 that savings to the drug companies results in lower prices. Thank you no, so much. Thank you. Yeah. thank you, Kathleen. And there's a good follow-up coming from social media in Jim Wilkie. He asks, what is your plan to provide universal health care coverage? So Colorado, uh, we got to almost universal coverage. We've got just, just short of 95% coverage. We expanded Medicaid. We have, I think, the most innovative uh, and, and really one of the most successful healthcare exchanges in the country, but we didn't get to 100%. And I think we do need a public option. Now, if we do that public option, let's say Social Security, I mean, <laughs> uh, that's, that's where I'm really going to get myself in trouble. Um, it, let, let's say that it is Medicare. Right, or Medicare, uh, you know, one of the other forms of, of Medicare. How do we make sure that, uh, that people know how to get there and that it scales rapidly enough so that the real co 
cost savings. So if you have Medicare, you have Medicare Advantage. There's certain other twists there. What we want to get to is the point where is get to the point where that's, that that uh, that public option allows people a choice. So if their health care is too expensive or doesn't provide enough coverage, they can get to to Medicare uh, and. And if more people go to Medicare, then we can actually get, I mean, someday we can get to Medicare for all. People have to remember, I think, that we're, you know, over 150 million people right now have insurance with their, with a private insurance company, and many of them are unhappy with that insurance, and, and the, the inflation that happens, seems like every year is, you know, 6, 8, 10%. But we also have to remember that many people are happy with it. And so I don't think we can go immediately. I, uh, I have tremendous respect for Senator Sanders and all the work he's done to provide clarity to some of these ma you know, major issues facing uh, this country. But I don't, in this particular case, I don't agree with his solution. In this same vein, uh, as governor in Colorado, uh, on the issue of health care and specifically mental health, what have you done about mental health? Uh, in, obviously, one of the ter terrible problems we have in the United States with mass shootings, mental health seems to be a big issue. And you saw one of the worst uh, there in, in uh, Colorado yourself. So mental health as it relates to our gun problems. So when we, when we had the shooting in the Aurora movie theater uh, in 2012, and one of the most sobering things in my life was going to that, that, that the, the, the control, the, the command, the portable control center, the mobile co uh, command center. And I saw the video. I was there with the, the mayor of Aurora and the, the chief of police. We saw the video of the crime scene right when it came out. And it was just sobering beyond I can express with words. We, first, we said, all right, we're going to have a period of mourning for the, for, the, for the families of the victims and for the victims themselves that survived to, 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 to grieve. But then we came out, and the first thing we did was we said we would, set, we would uh, provide $30 million a year for mental health. Uh, the next thing we did was go toward universal background checks. And even after that shooting, we could not get the National Rifle Association to go along. Every single Republican business leader I knew thought universal background checks were the best. And I got in this fight with my son, Teddy. <laughs> I came home and made the mistake of complaining to him. He was in fifth grade. He goes, Dad, what's so hard that you do at work all day? Make decisions? I said, well, Teddy, I said, he goes, Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check next. I go, well, Teddy, it's not that easy. Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check next. Every day I've got to go to school and learn something completely new each day that I didn't know existed today, but the day before. And if I don't get it perfectly, uh, the next day is misery because everything's based on, you know, after five minutes, I said, Teddy, you're right, fifth grade is harder than being governor. <laughs> but then I went and got, I went and got the facts on, on, uh, universal background checks just in Colorado. Because we were getting to, like almost all states, we were getting to about half the gun purchases. We wanted to get to universal coverage, uh, have everyone get a, 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 a background check. And the, my Republican friend said, crooks aren't stupid. They're not going to get a background check. Why should the rest of us pay 10 bucks and wait around? Here's what happened in Colorado, population 5 million people, 5.5 million people, in 2012, getting to half the gun purchases. 38 people convicted of homicide tried to buy a gun, and we stopped them. 133 people convicted of sexual assault, uh, I mean 620 burglars, 1,300 people convicted of felony assault, that's where someone usually goes to the hospital, tried to buy a gun, and, and, and we stopped them. Uh, there were 420 people who had judicial restraining orders not to see their ex-spouse or their ex-boss. They tried to buy a gun, and we stopped them. And just in case you don't think crooks are, aren't stupid, 140 people, when they picked up their new gun, 
We arrested them for an outstanding warrant for a violent crime. Those statistics to me are so powerful. And, and so we're the first purple state that got universal background checks passed. Uh, we had two Democrat senators that were recalled. There was an NRA put a huge amount of money into, into making sure that they got recalled from the state Senate. But we got it done. I think we also have to, the question was also about mental health. And we, even though we're putting all this money into mental health, it is still, we are in a, a national epidemic of mental health. And there's a level of depression and despair that people all over this country are feeling. Uh, that earlier question when we talked about, you know, why are people, why is our unhappiness, our unhappiness coefficients and measurements so significant? A lot of that is mental health issues. And we have to, we have to address them. You know, suicides continue to go up. From, look at in New Hampshire, from 1999 to 2016, your rate of suicides went up 48%. That's the highest in the nation. And that is, and it's not just here. You look at, uh, uh, in the Mountain West, we have very high suicide rates. Uh, on, on the other hand, but connected, look at the level of opioid addiction that we're seeing. And that translates sometimes into heroin addiction. These are all evidence of people, you know, not being able to, to deal with the system in which, in which they find themselves. And the only way we're going to work our way out of this is as a country by coming together. Not fighting about it and creating division, you win, I lose. But we've got to come together as a country and really deal with this. Okay, social media question now from John Foote, who's asking the inverse of a question that's sometimes put to uh, people running for office. He asks, can you explain backing abortion while at the same time being against the death penalty? Can I explain backing abortion while being the same against the death penalty? So I look at abortion as one of the most difficult issues facing the country because people have such deeply held uh, feelings about it. Uh, and in the end, I, I became good friends. I'm an Episcopalian, but I became good friends with our previous archbishop uh, of the Catholic Church. And in the end, we agreed that we were, we were going to disagree on this, but we, we both felt that we, should, we would do everything we could to make sure there were less abortions. And I feel, in the end, I think that women have to have the, the, the right to control their own health, their own health care. And one of the things we did in Colorado was we provided what they call LARC, long-acting reversible contraception, so things like Norplants, uh, to allow women from age 15 to 25, regardless of their financial circumstances, to decide when they wanted to have families, right? that they had control of their own health care. And in that process, we reduced teenage pregnancy and teenage abortion by more than 60%. And I think that's part of where we get to. Uh, I mean, abortion is such a difficult uh, issue. Uh, I think we've got we've to get to a point where, where we all agree that we're going to do everything we can to make sure we have less and less and less situations of unwanted, unintended pregnancies. Now, in terms of the death penalty, uh, I was always for it my whole life until you actually look at the facts. And the facts are that it costs a fortune, somewhere between, depending on what state you're in, 10 and $20 million once you pay for all the appeals. It's not a deterrent. States that got rid of the death penalty 50 years ago have no increase in homicides or mass murders. Uh, it drags the family members of victims through the worst period of their life again and again for every appeal. And perhaps most importantly, it is, it is, it is the, the, the ultimate penalty and again and again, we found we've made mistakes. Eyewitnesses are wrong. DNA proves someone innocent. And, 
And even more than that, it depends on where that crime is committed. And, and it, most data suggests whether the, the, the guilty party is, is a minority, on whether they get tried as a, for, on, as a death penalty case. Sometimes the same, cri the same crime in two neighboring jurisdictions, almost identical crimes, one will get tried as a death penalty and one will be tried as life in prison without parole. Uh, and, you know, as you get those facts, it's hard not, at least for me, it's hard for me not to come out against the death penalty. Next question comes from Aaron Motto of Derry. Welcome to New Hampshire. This country is very politically polarized, trading right and wrong for left and right. What would you do to change this? Well, that's a great question, and thank you so much. The, this notion of, of the, the polarization, I, I mean, I'm running for president because I think we are facing a crisis, a, 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 a national crisis of division. And I don't think, you know, I grew up during the civil rights protests and the protests against the Vietnam War in the 1960s. I think we're more divided now than we were then. I think you have to go back to the Civil War to see this country as divided as it is today. And I really feel that part of what I've done, and, and you know, I never ran for student council or anything before I ran for mayor of Denver in 2003, but I ran for mayor because I'd worked to bring mayors to, or worked to bring restaurant owners together when I first opened my restaurant in 1988. When I became mayor, I, I brought together all the mayors in the region that used to hate each other, and, and there were two-thirds of them Republicans. We created, we, we passed together, all 34 mayors unanimously supported a tax increase to create a uh, a transit system that really works. Uh, as governor, we got the environmental community to work with the oil and gas industry to, to pass methane regulations, the equivalent of taking 320,000 cars a year off the road, as I said. I mean, those are records of bringing people together uh, and getting progressive achievement. And I think that's, I mean, that's why I'm running, is I feel like I can bring people together and, and get results. I'm a, you know, there were a lot of dreamers in Washington. I'm a dreamer too but I'm also a doer. And I think that, you know, long term, I know I can beat Donald Trump, but I also think I can bring us together on the other side and really create positive, progressive change. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you, Aaron. Next question comes from Ann Ackerman. Hi there. My question is, what specific criteria would you use in uh, nominating uh, members for a cabinet and for uh, judicial appointments? Thank you. Uh, that, that is an excellent question. That's the first time I've gotten that specific question, although I've been thinking it in my head. So I think I'm, <clears throat> I, I am prepared in that sense that when I got elected mayor, I didn't care whether someone was a Republican or a Democrat. I ran for mayor. I was going to ch you know, try and lift up the whole metropolitan area, but I was also going to try and, and fight back against what I call the fundamental nonsense of government. And that's where the people that help you get elected, you appoint them to run these big, complex agencies of city government or state government or federal government if you're running for president. And I wanted to, the best managers and leaders, people that knew how to mobilize and incentivize and hold accountable a large workforce. Uh, and we hired Republicans, Democrats. We also focused on div diversity. And that when I first became mayor, we had, I don't know, almost 50% people of color. Uh, I think it was almost 60% women. We had the most diverse group of people, and I got ma elected mayor in, in 2003. Uh, two and a half years later, uh, uh, Time Magazine ranked me as one of the top five big city mayors in America. That wasn't about me. I barely knew where the bathrooms were. It had been, been two and a half years. It was a reflection that I had in this diversity, 
and, and the talent that we assembled, this amazing group of people. So experience is a huge part of this. Uh, obviously, integrity, I think, is, is, is critically important. Right? You cannot build an, a, a team and accomplish great goals without integrity. And I would say the same, you can't have a great judge without integrity. You've got to have intellect, right? People have to be able to un understand complex issues and figure out in, in, when you've got a difficult decision to make, how do, what is the most important and, and the crucial elements in that, in that problem so that you make the right decision? Uh, so I think integrity, uh, intellect, and you know, ultimately a, a, a vision for you know, for what a positive, progressive future looks like, right? That we, this, this country's always got to keep moving forward and making progress. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Thank you, Anne. Next question comes from Trish Joy of Gustown. Hi. Good morning, Governor. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm a senior on Social Security, and I'm single, and I need to work two jobs. Um, and I'm wondering how you would make sure Social, social Security stays solvent as we're going to run out of money, I think, by the year 2034. So that means I'll be working forever. <laughs> um, I hear you. And <laughs> at a time when, again, 75 to 80% of the families in this country, don't, they, they're having a hard time balancing their household budgets at the end of every month. We are at, at, at a crossroads where we've got to make some really important decisions. And certainly, Social Security should be inviolate, right? By that, I mean you, no one should be able to mess with it. And part of the, you know, when there are withholding taxes, when people are, money is taken out of their payroll to pay for Social Security, it stops at a certain level at about whatever it is, 134000 I mm -hmm. think. I'd have to go check. Yes. Why does it stop at 134000 You know, I think that if we let that go on up so the people that make $5 million are still paying that, that sliver. For, that percent. Yeah, exactly, that, 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 that small amount of their paycheck. And when you're making that kind of money, why would you, why would you fight it? I'm sure they will fight me on it. Mm -hmm. But if, if, if we would make that one change, it would take, it would take about 80 or 85% of the, of the problems with social, balancing Social Security, it would eliminate them. So I'd start there, right? And then I would also focus on how do we make sure that there, the other parts that have been eroding the purchasing power of, of Social Security over the years, such as the cost of housing. As the cost of housing goes up, uh, again, for many, for many individuals, uh, it eats up a larger part of that very limited amount of money. The, the same thing in terms of the cost of health care, right? Even, even Medicare, you still have to pay into Medicare. Mm -hmm. How do we protect that so it's not taking a little bit of a bigger chunk? As you know very well, the, you know, Social Security is not lavish, right? <laughs> You're working two jobs. I'm working two jobs. I mean, it's, 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 it, it, we should protect Social Security. I give you my word, if I'm elected, I will not allow any dilution uh, to Social Security. I, I will veto any kind of legislation that, that reduces Social Security, and I would focus on making sure that at every level we've tried to restore and make, uh, make permanent a, a solvency that we don't run out of money. Okay. Thank you. No, you bet. Thank you, Trish. Following on that, Governor, uh, national debt, $22 trillion. If you're going to fix Social Security, it's going to cost money. What about the debt? The debt drives me nuts. <coughs> and I think the bottom line is, and, and I'm going to go off a little bit, and I'll, I'll restrain myself, take a deep breath. 
I mean, we passed a tax cut uh, in the recent past, and that tax cut, rough justice, was $1.5 trillion. And it benefited a very small number of people, and it's going to be paid long-term by a very large number of people, which is to say our children and grandchildren, to a large extent. Here's an interesting thing that I haven't seen reported, but I think it's pretty accurate. That $1.5 trillion, which essentially went into our national debt, right? Go look at, at, at the, we're, we're not seeing the gigantic extra revenues, our, 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 our deficits going up, up, up. That $1.5 trillion goes into our national debt. Half of that tax break was the corporate America, right? And I don't deny that, they, that, that our tax rates have to be competitive. We didn't have to make it the lowest tax rate in the whole country. And if you, if you take a moment and think about it, uh, half of it, so that's about $750 billion, goes to corporate America. 30% of, of the shares in our publicly traded stocks are owned by foreigners and foreign, country, foreign uh, corporations and foreign governments. So we basically gave 30% of the $750 billion you know, now you're getting close to, to $250 billion we gave as a gift, a gift to people that don't even live here. Uh, obviously, I would balance the budget. And this notion that, I mean, every governor, I got to balance the budget every single year. And even in their, when they're bad years, you figure out how to do it. It's no fun. People get angry. It's life. Every one of us has to balance our budgets. The federal government, the notion that they can continue to print money, and now some people are saying, well, long term, it doesn't really matter. Don't let them kid you. It will come back and bite us. When, if insurance rates start going up, uh, insurance rates, interest rates start going up. Insurance rates already have gone up. <laughs> but if interest rates uh, start going up, that, that, that cost, the amount of money that's going to pull out of our spending capability for the federal government, it's just going to pull more money out and make it harder to balance a budget than it is today, which obviously is, is, is not easy. So I will balance the budget, and then I will focus on trying to build the economy in a way that really does let us work our way out of this incredible, that's, I mean, that's the only real way. I can't imagine that we're going to be able to uh, cut the, 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 the national budget in such a way that we address the, the overall, um, uh, you know, this, this, this huge gap uh, in, a, in a positive way. But I think we can, if we balance the budget, then as we grow our economy, we will slowly but surely have the, the, the national debt be a smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of our GDP. If you're going to balance the budget, don't you have to cut something somewhere, though? It seems like we only balance that budget yeah, in times of plenty. So what gets cut? Oh, my gosh. The well, first thing, no one has really come in in, in, in in years and years and years and looked at how do we make the federal government more effective. And it's not just, you know, sometimes when you just randomly fire people or force them to leave and you don't replace them, you actually make things more expensive and worse. Uh, when I was mayor of Denver, uh, I came in. It's, it's, you know, it's funny. My mother, as I said, my mother was widowed twice uh, before she was 40. But my mother also grew up in the Depression. And so she sewed all her own clothes. Uh, she never bought a dress. She would wash tinfoil and tape it to the refrigerator door to, to make sure she could reuse it. I'm not making this up. But... That's, that approach to, um, to frugality is a big, is a place to start. And it's funny, all my grandparents were Republicans, all my aunts and uncles were Republicans, but my mother felt government should be smaller, but government had to work. And she raised four Democrats. Uh, I look at the, at, at, you know, where are you going to uh, make cuts? Part of it's efficiency. So when I was mayor of Denver, 
uh, from when I began to when I left, we had 7% fewer employees when I left than when we began, and yet we were doing probably half again, providing half again more services. Uh, that's the first place you, you, you find cuts. And then you have to look at, at, at savings in, I mean, right now we're, we're spending 19% of our GDP for healthcare. I mean, all, you take the average of Europe, and they're at about 10%. That's almost half of what we're spending, and they have better outcomes. You can't tell me that if we actually got people to come together, and we got the hospital association, and the doctors, and the insurance companies, and the pharmaceutical companies, all to work together and just say, you're all going to have to take a little bit of a hit. But we cannot continue spending at this level, and we can't continue this inflation, that we wouldn't begin to, to uh, bring that back. And then part of it is, even as we're trying to balance the budget uh, spending, we're going to have to address things that have been, you know, uh, off the list. In terms of our military, do we need quite so many bases overseas as we have today? Uh, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of, of, of bases over, overseas. I think maybe we should be investing more money in things like cybersecurity that I think are more, provide a greater danger to America right now, and that we begin looking at how do we get more efficient use out of our, you know, uh, our international relationships. Uh, you know, if I was president, I could tell you the two things I wouldn't do. I wouldn't ignore the advice of the most talented and experienced military officers and intelligence officers in the world. I, wouldn't ignore, I would not ignore their advice. And I also would make sure that we didn't alienate our allies. Uh, I understand trying to browbeat allies into paying more. I'm not sure that's the best way to get there. I think getting everyone to work together could actually save us money long term in how we allocate our dollars. We've got about two minutes left here. And this story uh, of your upbringing, uh, I'd like you to touch on that a little bit more. A formative experience, obviously, having uh, a single mother uh, and losing your father at age eight. How did that shape you, do you think, as a leader, watching her and then also having lost your father at such a young age? Well, my mother, my mother told us uh, again and again, she said, you can't control what life throws at you, uh, but you can control how you respond. Does it make you stronger or weaker? Does it make you better or worse? And she told each of us that we had to you know, figure out what our calling was. It, was it sports? Was it drama club? Was it academics? You know, I was moderately dyslexic, so I was never a good student, so that choice was easier for me. Um, but, you know, I threw myself into sports, uh, and just, you know, I'm probably the most competitive person that any of you know. I try to hide it to a certain extent. Uh, but I think that she laid that out. Also, losing your father when you're, uh, when you're very young, uh, most experts agree that you end up having to raise yourself to a certain extent. Uh, you don't get the guidance. My mother had a lot of stuff on her plate. So I never knew what clothes I should be wearing. Or I, I wore these awful geeky glasses when I, I had thick, thick glasses when I was a kid. I mean, you try growing up with thick glasses and a funny last name and acne. And, you know, I got bullied. People say, what are you going to do about Trump, about Trump when you get to debate with, to debate with him? Trust me, I know how to deal with bullies. Right? That, that is not a hard thing to, it's not as hard as what people make it out to be. But when you raise yourself, uh, you end up, sometimes it takes you a while to learn what, to, to gain confidence. And I've, of all the people running for president, all the people being talked about running for president, I'm going to guess I'm the only one who never ran for student council, let alone class president. I, I didn't have the confidence. And only when I opened that restaurant and I built a team and saw that we could change a whole community, and then I became mayor and had put a bigger, better team together, that's when I really began to realize, you know, I am a leader. I mean, it, was, it came kind of as a shock. Uh, and I think sometimes that, that approach to leadership, 
especially right now at this moment in America, might be just what we need. Governor John Hickenlooper, we thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much to our audience. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.